Well, there's no surprise here. Public speaking is tough. In fact, surveys of what people's greatest fears are, public speaking is usually the number one fear. So one writer mused, after looking at the list, that since the number one fear of people is speaking in public, and the number two fear on the list was death, the person concluded that most people who have come to a funeral would rather be the one who has died than give the eulogy. <laughs> but for Moses, the tradition holds, feared public speaking, it says, because he stuttered. Now I want to suggest to you that the importance of this Hebrew story is not that Moses might have been a stutterer, but rather Moses had this important message to share. And even with what he characterized as a disability, he still spoke. You heard it, right? God says to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, let the Israelites depart. And Moses says, why would Pharaoh listen to me? A man with a speech impediment. Moses appeals to God again. Don't make me do it. I'm slow of speech. Please. Yet what's astonishing is that God tells Moses to speak no fewer than 70 times in the Bible. And when Moses, in a sense, gets into trouble is when he is silent. So we might say, well, those with speech challenges or disabilities must love Moses. But I want to suggest to you that Moses does not belong just to those folk. Moses is for you and me as well. I think Moses belongs to any one of us who has a thing that we would rather, rather not have. Your thing might be a fear of public speaking. Or maybe it's a fear of the unfamiliar. Maybe you wish you were more punctual. Maybe you wish you were less obsessive about time, a little easier going. Maybe you wish you were more like Martha in the New Testament. Remember, Martha was disciplined and not easily distracted. She hewed to her to-do list. Or maybe you wish you were more like her sister Mary, who was willing to drop the to-do list to sit at the feet of Jesus. Whatever our thing, our thing often becomes for us a wall that we try to hide behind. I think that's what Moses was trying to do. So in that spirit of things that we may hide behind, I tell you this, I never, I mean never, saw my father cry. I saw my father at both of his parents' funerals. I saw my father standing at both of their gravesides. I saw my father greet his beloved yet bereft brother, our uncle, at our aunt's funeral after she had died at the age of 53. I never saw a tear roll down his face, ever. Don't get me wrong, my siblings and I, we had a good relationship with our dad. He was supportive, he was proud of us, 
We loved him and he loved us. He was kind, enjoyed a good joke. He was always helpful. But when I came to my father's comfort level with sadness, with his emotions, he was Moses. My dad was slow of speech emotionally. Now, those of you who know me well understand in that way I am not so much like my dad. Yes, in some ways, I am like him. I'm punctual. I'm a little stubborn. I love history. And Catherine, yes, it's in the DNA. I can be a bit of a mansplainer. It comes from my father. But unlike my dad, I get teary-eyed fairly often. My eyes blurred over during several scenes of the Mr. Rogers movie. I stood in this pulpit and I cried when I preached about a Christian understanding of death almost 10 years ago to the day, just before the Reverend Catherine Price died. I can tell you that I've stood there before the baptismal font and been choked up more times than I can count when I've looked into the eyes of children I have baptized. And at the memorial service for my dear friend, a dear friend of many of you as well, the Reverend Robert Kemper, as we sang his favorite hymn for all the saints, I wept like a child. I've always been embarrassed by my emotions. I always wished I could hide them better, build a taller wall. Sometimes my emotions have felt like a speech impediment or a limp and a weakness. A theologian once suggested that that kind of irrational embarrassment about honest feelings causes someone to act as if they're under siege. I mean, you know what happens when someone is under siege? They feel threatened. They live in fear. And when a city is besieged, right, it pulls all of its resources behind the city walls. And if the walls aren't strong enough, they fortify them. They make them wider and taller and even more impenetrable. And then you bring water and food behind that wall and protect yourself from the rest of the world. And you do it out of fear. Now, I might get into trouble here because this is a rather broad generalization. But I think of the emotional walls are more often built and fortified by men than by women. There are exceptions to both, of course. But my dad was my role model. And my dad often pulled up the emotional drawbridge. But that's because for generations, I think men have been trapped in an outdated and unhelpful vision of masculinity. For many men, the only reliable and perhaps acceptable expression of emotion is anger. And too often, masculinity becomes equated with someone who stands at the greatest distance from vulnerability possible. And I think that leads men to feeling trapped. Trapped without a language to talk about how they feel or hurt or are disappointed. It's a speech impediment. I think that was my dad.
And so my dad held his feelings, even with those of us he loved, behind a pretty high wall. This summer, I went with some guy friends and saw the play Support Group for Men at the Goodman. It was witty, it was insightful, and it dealt with men's discomfort with their vulnerability. It was a story of three middle-aged guys who were adjusting to getting older, and then one younger guy who was a part of their support group whose life they were envious of. And one of the men was dealing with more and more sports injuries and a sense of diminishment as he continued to play sports with younger guys. <laughs> Seemed rather far-fetched to me. <laughs> but what I loved is that it was written by a woman. And in their Tuesday night support group, the men attempted, almost always clumsily, to talk about relationships, sex, race, one of them was African-American, and to talk about the world in general. In the playwright Ellen Ferry wrote, I think for men, being vulnerable and speaking truth to each other feels like an act of rebellion. It's something taboo. It's almost unrecognizable. And so I think what happens that is that instead of rebelling, we often erect walls and separate ourselves even from those we love. And as much as I think the playwright is spot on, I also know that our Christian faith calls us for something deeper, something more. You know, whenever I'm in New England, I always love stopping and looking at those astonishing and beautiful stone walls. I mean, you know the ones, right? They were built without mortar. As someone built, maybe over decades, boulder by boulder by boulder. But what I've come to discover now that I'm older is that what I find most interesting and actually beautiful about those walls is where they have opened up, sometimes quite naturally, where gaps have begun to emerge and there is a place to pass through. I think that's what Robert Frost felt deeply in a poem I've shared with you numerous times, The Mending Wall. Too often in that poem we quote the, the line that we think is the meaning, which is good fences make good neighbors, but it isn't. Because three times in that poem it says something there is that doesn't love a wall. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. I think that something or someone is God. Maybe. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul urges us to remember that nothing, no matter how we, hard we may work at it, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Paul writes, he actually almost sings, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither our fears of today nor our worries about tomorrow, nothing, indeed nothing, in all of creation will separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ our Lord. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. It's God whose love was made flesh in Jesus.
I told you that oftentimes when we are threatened, we hide behind a wall as if we're under siege. Do you know what the longest siege in history was? 30 years. For 30 years, a generation and a half of people hid out of fear behind a wall. Well, eventually, even that siege ended and the people were set free. They no longer had to live in fear, but they could live in love. Strangely enough, I think my dad's wall came down after about 30 years of adulthood as well. It's when he became a grandfather. Many people only knew my dad as the tender, sweet grandfather he became. Their remembrances of him are with my niece Susan in his lap at the dinner table feeding her ice cream or sitting with his arm around a grandson reading to him. But I also know those are the happiest and most loving years of my father's life. Because something, something there is that doesn't love a wall. There was even something in him that didn't love a wall either. I told you that when Bob Kemper died, I wept like a child. But I think maturity calls me to a different understanding. Catherine already shared with the children that Jesus knew the whole range of human emotions. That the shortest verse in the New Testament is, Jesus wept. So I want to amend that statement, if I may. And I want to do it without embarrassment. And I'd like to lower the wall for a moment. I want to say it this way. When my dear friend Bob died, and we sang for all the saints, I wept, but not like a child, but a man who was grateful to know the blessing of love and friendship. Amen.